The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Let's go ahead and look at 1 Corinthians 15. Together we're going to look at verses 50 to 50. Can you believe that we're actually going to finish chapter 15? I mean, this is the longest chapter in Corinthians. It's actually one of the longest chapters in the New Testament. 58 verses. And we, I didn't want to just rush through it because it's not narrative. You, you can go through a lot of verses in a big chunk of narrative, but this is didactic teaching from Paul with some heavy theology and many different themes linked together. and You just can't rush through it. Uh, but even this chunk today, 50 to 58, that's a big chunk, and I've got way too much to say in the two hours I have to preach today. Um, so we'll see how we do. But I definitely want to highlight Paul's main points and it would encourage you to continue to study uh, this great, rich passage on your own. The title I put there for, he's continuing his discussion on the reality of the resurrection. That all this, this whole chapter goes together uh, where he's talking about the reality of bodily resurrection. And he's addressing this because there were people in his church, the church that he planted, a church that was probably three to five years old, brand new church, and he'd been away for two years, and a teaching snuck in there somehow in this Christian church that there was no such thing as a bodily resurrection after people die. And then it began, only a few people held that view. Some, he said. First Corinthians 15, I think it's verse 12. Just some, just a few. But it was such a vital doctrine and it could easily spread rapidly like cancer and gangrene and undermine basic Christianity, the gospel itself. That's why Paul designates so much time to this truth. He's got to settle this categorically once and for all. You cannot be a professing Christian or a real Christian and deny bodily resurrection because bodily, physical resurrection is part of the gospel and it is the gospel that saves. So if you reject bodily resurrection, you reject the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you reject the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have just rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can't be a Christian. So it's not a tangential or secondary issue. This is abject heresy that categorically needs to be rejected. And Paul, I just got a little passionate just now because that's how Paul got as a pastor. His uh, thermometer, his temperature is kind of rising throughout this chapter. And as you read it, you see that. It just keeps escalating till it reaches a crescendo in the passage, actually, that we read last time when we were in here together where he's using terminology like, you fool. That's, that is harsh language. You fool in calling these people, perpetuating that as bad company or evil people. So it is harsh, caustic, yet appropriate language. Eternal souls are at stake. This isn't about who's going to win or lose this, the Super Bowl or the World Series. This is eternal truth. And that's why it's so important. Um, so then we got to the middle of the chapter and he asked, answered a couple of questions where maybe some skeptics were going to ask, well, how are the dead raised? I mean, yeah, okay, fine. There's resurrection. It's important. It's a part of the gospel. But, I mean, how does God pull that off? And that's what we answered last week. How in the world somebody decompose, die, get buried, and then come back to life? That's unbelievable. How are the dead raised anyway? And with what kind of body are they going to come? And then Paul answered that thoroughly last week. God's going to do a supernatural work. It's not the same body that is raised. It's a different body. It's the same person in a different body. There's continuity and discontinuity. 
Your identity is preserved, yet supernaturally. So the resurrection body, when God raises people from the dead, he's going to do it with a new body that is suited for eternally the heavenly spiritual domain, and it will be a physical body. And it will never die. It is absolutely perfect. And it will live on for eternity. It's a glorious body. And there are no defects. And it was without sin. And it resides in the company of God in heaven. And it is after the model of Jesus Christ's resurrection body. That's how God is going to do it. Absolutely amazing. And then after Paul answers that question, okay, what kind of body are dead people going to get at the resurrection? Paul actually answers another question, and it's kind of the flip side. So at the end of the age, whenever God has the resurrection, he's resurrecting people out of the grave, people who have died and decomposed, and then he raises them out of the grave. So then another question is, well, what happens, uh, and this is what Paul's topic is, that he also wants to explain. Now I know, and here's Paul as a Jew, the Old Testament teaches resurrection. The book of Job, Daniel chapter 12, many other places, Psalm 16. And when the Old Testament teaches resurrection, it always teaches that God will raise people from the dead and give them a resurrection body. That's the consistent teaching. And in this passage, verses 50 to 58, Paul is going to reveal a new truth that no one had ever heard before about resurrection. Ever. Jesus didn't talk about it. Jesus didn't teach on it. It's not in the Old Testament. The prophets never talked on it. You can't find it anywhere in the Old Testament. It's an absolutely new truth about bodily resurrection that he's going to unveil in 50 to 58, and he calls it a mystery. Mysterion is the Greek word where we get the word mystery from. And uh, basically the truth of that mystery that's being unveiled for the first time has to do with the rapture. And that's why I called this, this uh, verses 50 to 58 is actually about a lot of things, but one of the main things Paul is emphasizing is uh, something true about the rapture. So that's why I titled it The Rapture. Uh, if you look at verses 50 to 58, you won't see the word rapture, but you will see the truth about the rapture. And then one new thing about the rapture being revealed. Uh, so let's go ahead and look at it uh, regarding the truth of the rapture and other related truths about bodily resurrection as Paul brings this uh, discussion to a conclusion. And I broke it up again into three points of emphasis to help us go through the passage. And I wanna, we'll look at the first point there, which is actually verses 50 to 53. And point number one is that the, the rapture, a mystery revealed. A mystery revealed. Let me read the three verses. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold! You know, this, comes, this is a word used uh, in the Old Testament that was an emphatic statement to kind of wake people up and shake them up. Behold, pay attention, get this. Get this amazing truth or this startling command or whatever it is. That's the nature. Behold, I tell you a mystery. I tell you a mysterion, a mystery. We sh and here's the mystery. Well, what is, what is this mystery? We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this for this perishable must put on the imperishable and the mortal must put on immortality this is talking about the ruth the truth of the rapture the rapture maybe some of you have ever never heard of the rapture 
It was a big topic of study and discussion and even controversy in the Christian world abroad, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and then it's just kind of dissipated and not talked about much in the last two decades or so for different reasons, the rapture. Um, but here it is. It's a truth uh, discussed. Uh, let's go through the passage, and then we'll get into some of the nitty-gritty nitty details of the rapture. First of all, what is the rapture? Uh, let's go to First Thessalonians, a book that Paul wrote before 1 Corinthians. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So just by way of summary, what is the rapture? The rapture is the idea... And I would also say that the rapture itself is not found in the Old Testament. The rapture is not taught in the Old Testament. You will search in vain for this idea of a rapture. The second coming of the return of the Messiah uh, is in the Old Testament. But the rapture can't be found. So the rapture itself is uh, a mystery, a newly revealed doctrine in the New Testament. And it's described by Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And the idea of the rapture is that uh, during the church age, the Lord Jesus, who is now in heaven in a physical body, at some point will instantaneously come. And he's gonna, he will come out of heaven, but he won't come down to the earth. He will come out of heaven, and he'll stop, put on his supernatural heavenly brakes, and stop in the clouds of our stratosphere here, not coming down all the way to the earth. And then he will rise uh, dead Christians from the dead. They will come out of the graves, and then they will get sucked up into the air, into the clouds, to meet Jesus in the air. That's where we meet. Dead Christians. Sucked out of the grave in resurrection bodies, meeting Jesus in the air, and then Jesus will take them back to heaven. That's the truth of the rapture. Also at the rapture, according to this passage, when Jesus comes at any time, there are no events that need to take place before the rapture. It's an imminent event, meaning it could happen at any moment. The rapture could happen right now. The rapture, the rapture could happen before dessert at the fellowship meal. And so at any time, Jesus comes, calls uh, dead Christians up, raises them from the dead. They meet him in the air. What about living Christians? Well, they're also going to get uh, they'll get caught up and meet Jesus in the air. Caught up. Uh, so let's go ahead and look at this passage, 1 Thessalonians uh, 4, 13, verse 13 and following, just by way of background. This will help us and complement 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Paul says to the Thessalonians, but we do not want you to be ignorant or uninformed. Here's a, a truth that you need to have more information on it because it wasn't taught in the Old Testament, so I'm giving you new information. Um, we don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, fellow Christians, about those who are asleep, about Christians who have died and are dead, about your grandma who is a Christian who is now dead and buried. Apparently you guys are concerned about your dead Christian relatives and what happens to them at the resurrection. Don't worry. Don't be ignorant. Uh, I don't want you to be grieving for them as do the rest who are unsaved and have no hope. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so if you're a Christian, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So Jesus is going to take care of Christians who have died and are buried. They're not going to miss out on resurrection. They're going to be a part of it. And here's how it's going to happen. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. This is revelation from Almighty God that he's giving to the church. Uh, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. So uh, it could happen, like I said, right now. And anybody that's a Christian and is alive on planet earth today, that's verse 15. That we who are alive and remain at the coming of Jesus shall not proceed to go before those who have fallen asleep. So 
uh, if Jesus came right now, we aren't going to go up into heaven and be with Jesus before our Christian uh, relatives who died before us. We won't go before them. We won't leave them behind. God isn't going to forget about them. As a matter of fact, we're not going to go before them. They're going to go before us. Verse 16. For the Lord himself, that's Jesus, will descend from heaven, there it is, with a shout, a declaration of authority, with the voice of the archangel. That's an eschatological command given by God. Something great is about to happen. And with the trumpet of God. And here's what's going to happen. The dead in Christ shall rise first. So when Jesus does come at the rapture, and he comes out of heaven, and he's in the clouds, and he makes a great sounding, reverberating noise throughout the universe, instantly dead Christians are going to rise up out of their graves. And we who are alive, we're going to actually see this happening. Absolutely amazing. Sounds like a Hollywood TV show, sci-fi show, but this is reality. With the voice, uh, and then the dead in Christ shall rise first, verse 17, and then we who are alive and remain will be snatched up, caught up, raptured. That's where you get the word rapture. It's right there in verse 17. The Greek word refers, means rapture, raptured. So Jesus comes, he's in the clouds, he calls up dead Christians, whoosh, they get sucked up to meet Jesus in the air, and right after they go, then if you're alive and you're a Christian on planet Earth, then whoosh, we're going to go right after dead Christians. They have to go first because they uh, need, they're like six feet behind us anyway. That's what somebody said, but a uh, commentator. But that's not true. But here's the key, verse 17. We will be caught up. That means snatched up. Literally, Jesus is going to snatch us from planet Earth to be with him in the air, in the clouds. Absolutely amazing, supernatural event. And then look what happens. We, together we will uh, meet in the air. So we're going to have a reunion of all believers in the clouds, in the sky, with Jesus. We'll all be together. And thus, here's the beautiful, uh, wonderful, encouraging news. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. So Jesus is going to come get us. He snatches us up. He raptures us up. He takes us back to heaven. How do we know he goes back to heaven? It doesn't say that in this passage. Well, if you go to John 14, chapter 2 and 3, just before Jesus went back to heaven, he actually introduced this doctrine to his apostles. And he said, do not be troubled. If I go, I'm going to come and receive you again. He's going, I am leaving. I'm going to go prepare a place for you in the Father's mansion. And if I go, I will come and I will receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. In other words, Jesus said, I'm going to leave, prepare holy mansions for God's people. I will come back again. I will receive you to myself. And then I'm going to take you with me to be in heaven forever with the Lord. And so John 14 is a complimentary complimentary teaching to 1 Thessalonians 4, the teaching of the rapture. And now go to 1 Corinthians 15, and here Paul gives even more information about the rapture that was introduced by Jesus, that was identified and called the rapture by Paul in 1 Thessalonians. And now he's going to give even more new information, which Paul calls a mystery that is going to be unveiled. And uh, it's an amazing truth. So let's go ahead and look at it. Going back to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, just want to highlight a couple of key phrases and words. He says, now I say this, brethren, and he uses the word brethren, meaning, now, now I say this to you, brothers and sisters in Christ. Now Paul is being pastoral again. He's kind of calming down. He just, I mean, after all, he just got done calling them fools, whoever they were, and rebuking them. So now he's being pastoral, and now he's trying to encourage. He reprimanded, and now it's time to encourage with an amazing and great truth, especially for those who are true believers, because it could very well be that there were some false sheep who are wolves in their midst, deceivers. 
But now he's appealing to true believers. I want to encourage you with this amazing truth. Now I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood, that's a technical phrase, and it refers to the body that we have now. Uh, Flesh and blood refers to mortal humanity. Flesh and blood just refers to humanity that is going to decay and die in this life. Uh, that, that which is not immortal or eternal. As a matter of fact, the synonym he gives in the second part of the verse, he, he calls flesh and blood the perishable. That which dissolves, uh, dies, decomposes. That's literally the word. And he referred to it back in verse 42 when he said that Adam had a perishable body. Adam, the first Adam, was made of flesh and blood. And so he decayed and he died. And he had an earthy body. He had a natural body. Uh, he had a soulish body. He had a body of flesh and blood. He had a decomposing body. He had a perishable body. He had a mortal body. He had a dying body. He used all those adjectives to describe the constitution of Adam's first body. And then he, he called him the first Adam. And then he compared how that was going to be different with Christ's resurrection body, the second Adam, the imperishable body, the immortal body, the spiritual body, not the earthy body, the body which could not decompose or ever die that is imperishable, and that is not a body of flesh and blood. So Jesus' resurrection body is not a body of flesh and blood. Does that mean that Jesus' resurrection body doesn't have blood in it? Probably not. Does it have bones? Yes, we know from Luke 24 that Jesus' resurrection body has bones. Heavenly bones, supernatural bones, bones that will live forever and ever and ever, will never decay. Because he told his disciples, touch me, feel I'm physical, and he had flesh, and he had bones that he could eat. So the resurrection body, apparently, it is physical, and it even has bones, but they're supernatural, eternal bones, but it's not of blood, of this life. As a matter of fact, when a a human being dies, immediately the body begins to decompose. And with the dissolution and decomposition process in death, uh, the blood and the flesh are the first things to decompose. As a matter of fact, within a year, a typical human body that has dead will decompose to the point that all of the flesh and all of the blood have disappeared, and all that remains is the skeleton and the bones. So this designation of flesh and bones refers to the exterior of our human bodies that is physically dying and represented by death and uh, dissolution. So that's why that phrase is used, flesh and blood. So all he's saying is the first Adam, in this, the body that you're in right now, that cannot enter into the heavenly eternal domain. You are not suited right now for living forever in heaven and in the spiritual realm. You need a new body to accommodate your eternal reborn again soul. And it needs to be a resurrection body. And so he just reiterates and summarizes the truth he just talked about in verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, summary statement, uh, transitional statement, that flesh and blood cannot enter uh, the kingdom of God. What do you mean can't enter the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? That, that is a complex answer to that question. The kingdom of God. Uh, that's been debated for 2,000 years among theologians and Bible teachers. It'd be interesting if we did a survey and I asked you, what is the kingdom of God? I might get several different answers. And even apparently contradictory answers. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing because if you study the phrase the kingdom of God in the New Testament you'll see that you get different answers about what it is. That's why it's so confusing. What is the kingdom of God? Well, just so you know, the kingdom of God is a technical phrase in the New Testament. The kingdom of God. It's used by Luke over 30 times in his gospel, the kingdom of God. It's used four times by Matthew, the kingdom of God in his gospel. 
14 times Mark in his gospel refers to the kingdom of God. Two times the gospel of John uses the phrase the kingdom of God. Eight times in the book of Acts you see the kingdom of God. And it, it always refers to something uh, that has the same reference. Matthew only refers to it four times. In Matthew's gospel, he refers to the kingdom of heaven 32 times. He doesn't like to say the kingdom of God. He prefers, but it's, it's synonymous. It's the exact same thing. So the kingdom of God is the kingdom of heaven, and it's multifaceted in what it is. Now, the amazing thing is, uh, Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, he said, I must go out and keep doing ministry, and I must go into other cities, and I must preach, and I must preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, for that is why I was sent. Isn't that amazing? Why was Jesus sent into the world in the first time? One of the answers is he was sent here to preach about the kingdom of God. Well, I thought he was supposed to preach the gospel. Yes. So then the kingdom of God ha must have something to do with the gospel. Absolutely. Jesus came to preach the kingdom of God. The apostle Paul preached the kingdom of God. Peter preached the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is wrapped up in the gospel message. It is the good news, whatever it is. And so you keep looking at all these verses about what is the kingdom of God. What, I thought that was just strictly future. Old line hyper-dispensationalists, if you know what that is, who make a priority of the details of eschatology or future events and prophetic events, uh, typically would say that the kingdom of, God, kingdom of God always refers to something in the future. It's not here and now. It's not spiritual. It's physical. It's in the physical, earthly domain. And usually they would say the kingdom of God refers to the thousand-year millennium. And only that. And I'd say, well, it's not only that. I'd say it includes that. Absolutely. There are verses clearly that describe the millennial kingdom as the kingdom of God. That's a literal physical manifestation that fulfills many Old Testament prophecies. But in the Gospels, Jesus uh, said many different things about what the kingdom of God was. He did refer to it as a future event about someday at Abraham's table. If you do the right thing and believe the right thing, you will get to sit down with Abraham in the kingdom of God and not be thrown where there's gnashing of teeth in hell. So there's a future dimension to the kingdom of God. Jesus taught that. Jesus also taught in his day that there was a present manifestation of the kingdom of God because a couple of times he said to the people as he was teaching, the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God is in your midst. He said that in Matthew and in Luke. So there's a present dimension. And, that was, and it was a spiritual dimension, not so much a physical dimension. John, the only time he refers to the kingdom of God in his gospel is chapter 3. And he links it in describing what it means to be born again. If you're born again, you get to go into the kingdom of God. So for John, the kingdom of God has to do with salvation and regeneration and being saved. So that's a spiritual component. And then there's also references describing the kingdom of God as an eternal event with reference to the new heavens and the new earth. That is also true. And then finally, the thief on the cross. There were two thieves or two... Uh, Criminals crucified on either side of Jesus and one finally repented and he turned to Jesus at the last hour and said, Lord, he called him Lord. Remember me when you come into my kingdom. What was he saying? I am a sinner. I need to be saved. And Jesus, you're the only one that can do it. And I want to go to heaven. And Jesus turned to him and said, Verily I say to you, Amen, I say to you, Truly I say to you, It is a fact. It is a truth. You can count on it. This day, today, Good Friday, you, sinner, will be with me, the king, in paradise. Jesus defined the kingdom of God, calling it 
paradise. And he said, you will be with me in paradise. Where is paradise? Paul says in Corinthians, paradise is heaven. So you can see that the kingdom of God refers to many things. There is a common denominator in all of it. And it was predicted in the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel, especially chapter 7, and also in Daniel. Even though the phrase, the kingdom of God, doesn't exist in the Old Testament, there was teaching about the kingdom. And every time it teaches about the future kingdom, it has to do with the coming Messiah, the anointed one, the Mashiach, the king, the king of the earth, the king of Israel, the king of the world. He is the king, and if you have a right relationship with the king, then you are now in the kingdom regardless of the manifestation of it, whether it's present, future, physical, spiritual, regeneration. So what is the kingdom of God? Simplest definition. It's the domain or the severe, uh, sphere where Jesus rules as king. That is the kingdom of God. How do you get into the kingdom of God? If you have a relationship with Jesus, you are in the kingdom of God. That's where it starts. And it will entail a physical dimension, a spiritual dimension, a future dimension, a present dimension, and an eternal dimension. And it all has to do with your relationship with Jesus Christ. And so here, I think, is the future dimension of the kingdom of God, where we'll have a resurrection body. It will be on earth, Old Testament scriptures being fulfilled in the presence of God's people, but most importantly, being with the king, Jesus. He defines the kingdom of God because he is the king of kings. So flesh and blood cannot enter into the kingdom of God, can't enter into future eternity, can't enter into heaven, nor does the perishable, the flesh and blood body, inherit the imperishable. So here's the great truth, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. The mystery, I said, I referred to the mystery earlier. Mysterion is the Greek word. It's a specific word. It is a technical word used by Paul. He uses it pretty much the same way every time. The apostle Paul uses uh, the word mysterion 20 times. You'll find the word mysterion used 27 times in the New Testament. 20 times by Paul. Three times by Jesus in the gospel. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all one time, and it's all referring to the same event. So really, just one time by Jesus, 20 times by Paul, and the remaining four by John in the book of Revelation. So Paul is the apostle of the mysterion. That's why in Corinthians chapter 4, Paul referred to himself as the steward of the mysteries. The steward of the mysteries. God made Paul a special, unique apostle. He was number 13. And he was unique because he wasn't a part of the 12. He was unique because he became an apostle later. He was unique in that he never uh, saw the resurrected Christ as far as we know before Jesus ascended. He saw the resurrected Christ after Jesus ascended and then appeared to Paul many times. He was unique in that he was called the apostle to the Gentiles. The others were apostles to the Jews. So there are many unique things about Paul in terms of his role. And one of the unique things about Paul is that he was the apostle of the mysteries. Because that's what it says in Corinthians chapter 4. I am a steward of these mysteries. What is a mystery? A mystery is new truth. A mystery is that which is unveiled in the New Testament that was hidden in the Old. So when you're studying Paul and you read about a mystery, you know that you are dealing with a truth and a doctrine that was not revealed or found in the Old Testament. It's gotta be, there's got to be something new there. That's how it is used 100% of the time. And so Paul's going to do that right here. I tell you a mystery. Here's some, in other words, here's some new information. The Thessalonians don't even have that. And they're more obedient than you. 
And here's the new truth. What is it? So it's actually kind of fun. If you did a Bible study and looked up the 20 usages of mystery by Paul, and you go to every one of those usages and fig- try to figure out, okay, what is the new truth here? The most common one is Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul refers to the mystery. I've been given a mystery. I'm giving you the mystery. I'm unveiling the mystery. And then he defines what the mystery is. And usually, you talk to your average Christian, what is the mystery being revealed or unveiled in Ephesians chapter 3? And from my experience, most people will say, well, it's the truth that Gentiles can be saved. I hear that all the time. That is not a mystery. That is not a new truth. God made it explicitly clear that Gentiles could be saved. So that's not a new truth. That's not the mystery. Well, that's what it says in Ephesians 3. Well, not really. You've got to read it very carefully. The fact that Gentiles would be saved is not a new truth. It happened in the Old Testament. Adam, get this, Adam was a Gentile. Noah was a Gentile. Job was a Gentile. Melchizedek was a Gentile. So there's a lot of Gentiles who got saved. And then God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, you're going to have a lot of descendants, and you're even going to bring about salvation through the Messiah even to Gentiles. So... And that, that truth of Gentiles being saved is all throughout the Old Testament. That is not a mystery. That is not new information. Then what is the greatest mystery of all in Ephesians 3? It's that Jew and Gentile will become equal heirs. As Well, first of all, that's a new truth. Equal in all ways? Absolutely. A Gentile could be saved in the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament, but he had to convert to Judaism to do it. That's totally different. That is no longer required. And when he did get converted, he was a Jew. Well, not so now. Not with this mystery. A Gentile is on equal footing with a Jew. You don't have to get circumcised and do all that other stuff. It's by the gospel of the risen Jesus Christ, and his name is, uh, yeah, his name is Jesus the Savior. And you will become an equal heir, and you will become one, Paul calls it, one new man. What is the one new man? It is the church, the body of Christ. It is Paul's favorite term for God's people in the New Testament. The body of Christ, the body of Christ, the body of Christ. The body of Christ is not taught or talked about in the Old Testament. You won't find it anywhere. You'll find Gentiles being saved. You will not find the phrase, the body of Christ, anywhere in the Old Testament. That is the greatest mystery revealed by Paul in the New Testament. It was the apostle unveiling the mystery of the body of Christ and its nature that Jews and Gentiles would be one in Christ incorporated in the body of Christ as Jesus as the head. And every mystery revealed out of those 20 references that Paul gives have to do some way or another related to the church and the church age. That is just an amazing truth. And so the rapture is part of that. The time of the rapture, which is a mystery, the church, the new man, the body of Christ, will be raised up. The mystery. And so he gives details about this mystery. What is it? Behold, I tell you a mystery. Here it is. Here's the mystery. We shall not all sleep. I've been talking about resurrection. The resurrection is real. Jesus will raise everybody from the dead. He's going to give us a new body. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be amazing. Uh, One thing I forgot to mention, because I haven't revealed it to you yet, because it's a mystery and nobody knows it, and I'm telling you first, and that is at the time of the resurrection of believers and church people, when Jesus raises people from the dead, Jesus is also going to do something amazing of, of those Christians who are alive at that time. If Jesus decided to come right now at the rapture and raise believers from the grave and resurrect them, he would also include us in this resurrection event called the rapture. And the way he's going to do it, he's not just going to suck us up into the clouds in the body that we have. That'd be horrible because we're not suited for eternal heaven. 
So he's got to change our bodies. We have to get resurrection bodies. Well, how do you get a resurrection body if you're not dead? Because Paul just explained, you've got to de- decay, die like a seed, and go into the ground. If you plant it, then you can get raised up. Well, what about those of us who are living and didn't die and don't go through the decomposition and sowing and burying process to be raised again from the dead? And Paul says, you know what? That's never been taught before. It's not addressed in the Old Testament, and I'm revealing it to you now. Here's the mystery. We shall not all sleep. So if you're a Christian, sleep refers to death for the Christian. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Even though as a, as a Christian living on earth, when Jesus comes to raise people from the dead, Jesus is going to change us who are living as well too. He's going to give us a resurrection body. So he's going to raise living people from the dead. Or he's going to raise living people and give them a resurrection body. That's never been taught before, ever. Resurrection always had to do with raising dead people we will be alive and so the mystery is is that living christians will be changed or transformed instantaneously that is the truth because that's the word he uses we shall all be changed super you're going to be transformed and changed just like the dead christians who were changed and transformed given a new resurrection body your living body will also be changed and transformed instantaneously in the moment of the twinkling of an eye that is the mystery that is the new truth you will not be left out of the resurrection just because you didn't die. And this is complementary to Philippians 3 where Paul said, we will be transformed after the resurrection body of Jesus Christ, even if you're alive. So what the rapture would look like, then Jesus uh, makes a shout. He comes out of heaven. He stops in the clouds. He raises dead Christians from the dead. He sucks them up. They're raptured. They're caught up with him. They have been changed and transformed instantaneously now with resurrection bodies. And we who are on earth, as we are getting sucked up, we are going to change as well and get a new, resurrected, transformed body. And it is going to happen so quick, quicker than a blink of an eye. We shall all be changed. We shall not all sleep. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. Some people like to put this as their nursery verse. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Literally, I've been to churches where... There's the sign on the nursery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Oh, oh, I get it. Think about it. But that's not what he's talking about. Well, how quick is this rapture, this change going to happen? Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. So it's at the end of the age. It can happen at any time, this rapture. Uh, The trumpet will sound. That's the trumpet of God. The dead will be raised imperishable. That's believers. And then after that, we also who are alive shall also be changed. We will... And the word, uh, he starts using the word put on. We're going to put on the resurrection body like we're putting on brand new, beautiful clothes. Verse 53, for this perishable, the body that we have that's dying, must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. So that is the mystery that Paul unveiled for the first time. That he is going to transform and change our lowly body for those who are alive instantaneously. How quick is it going to happen? He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. The word for uh, moment in verse 52 is actually where we get the word for Adam. The Greek word. Adam. Uh, The A on the front of it is a negative. It negates uh, the root word, which means divide. So what was an Adam? An Adam was the, the least common denominator that couldn't be divided from. And it's referring to the smallest increment possible of time. That is how quick it's going to be. And it's not the blink of an eye. That's too slow. It's the twinkle of an eye, which is the amount of time it takes light to reflect off of your eye, which is a zillion times quicker than a blink of an eye. That's how quickly 
God is going to do his work in transforming us. By the way, when I said that Paul was the steward of the mysteries, where 20 times he refers to the mysterion, you look at Peter's writings, zero references to Peter revealing mysteries. He never talks about the mysterion. And a mysterion was always new information. And I think maybe that plays into Second Peter 3 where Paul, Peter's writing about Paul and he's telling him, you know that the Apostle Paul, he's kind of different. Um, but hey, pay attention to him because he, he's a spokesperson for Christ and, boy, and, the, and it, you can't deny the wisdom God gave. The wisdom, wisdom could be the word of wisdom, one of the spiritual gifts of Revelation. The wisdom God gave him. And man, he speaks of hard things. Things that are hard to understand. That's what Peter said. He gets all these Musterions. I've never heard of Man, I walked and talked to Jesus for three and a half years, and then Paul gets all this information. I don't know if he's complaining, but anyway, he is letting Man, this just, it's hard to understand. I never heard it before either, but trust me, he's an apostle. So let's go on after the rapture. That's the main emphasis in this section, by the way. Just a glorious event that we look, we look forward to. Uh, so let's go to the next point. After the rapture, a mystery revealed is the remedy an enemy destroyed. And so coupled with the fact of the resurrection, uh, whether it's at the time of the rapture or even further at the end of the age, for other people who get saved either during the tribulation or maybe Old Testament saints, some would say they don't get raptured with the church, they get raptured after the tribulation, before the millennium, if that's true. There's going to be another resurrection but with, whether it's at, uh, the rapture or the second coming of Christ, the, another resurrection, uh, in addition to this rapture and this change we'll all undergo, is this wonderful truth that finally our greatest enemy, death, will be destroyed. That's uh, the point of verse 54 to 57, the remedy, the remedy to our greatest enemy. Who is your greatest enemy? Your greatest enemy is death. You, could, you can't even, I mean, it's not even Satan. Satan is an enemy, horrible enemy, First Peter 5. But the greatest enemy is death. Why do I say that? Because Paul has told us what the greatest enemy was already in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26. The last enemy is death. Death is not a friend. Death is not to be celebrated. Death is evil. Death is the antithesis of, of life and of God. It's an enemy. So death is not a friend. It's okay to mourn. As a matter of fact, every time death occurs in the Old Testament with God's people, there's mourning that goes on. As a matter of fact, God commands mourning, weeping, sorrow. Why? Because death is the byproduct of sin. It's an enemy. It's the worst enemy. It launches and catapults people into eternity, whether for heaven or for hell. But it's going to be conquered, finally. Verse 54. But when this perishable will put on the imperishable and this mortal body that you have will put on immortality. So when you get your resurrection body, then will come about the saying that is true. Finally, an Old Testament scripture is going to be fulfilled. It talks about death, and that's Isaiah 25, where the prophet predicted death is swallowed up in victory. Victory. The word for victory is Nike. You ever heard of Nike? That's where the word comes from. It means victory, to overcome, to win, to be the champion. Touchdown, spike the ball, slam dunk. That's what it means. Death, where is your Victory, you are swallowed up. And by the way, metaphorically, death is portrayed as just this ugly, heinous monster. But there's something bigger than the monster of death. And it's this victory we have in the resurrection life in Christ. And death, this ominous-looking monster, 
in the imagery here is just swallowed up by God, eaten, the enemy, and swallowed whole, never to be contended with again. Death is swallowed up in victory. Like I said, it's Nike, 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 uh, Nike, Nike. If you got the name Nike, that's what your mean, uh, name means, the victorious one. Who, uh, and then Revelation, John refers to overcomers, those who are, and he uses the word Nike again, those who know Jesus Christ. He goes on and quotes from Hosea as well. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? So the resurrection, when we have our bodily resurrection, death will be swallowed up forever. And that's why when you go to heaven, you are impervious to death. You will never die again. One of the great blessings and rewards of heaven. And then he, this is a taunt, by the way. Paul is mocking death. Oh, death, where are you? Verse 56, the sting of death is sin. Because the consequences of sin is death. That's what it means. And sin will be eradicated with the resurrection. And the power of sin is the law. The law of God is a good thing. Sin is bad, death is bad. The law is a good thing. The law is given by God. The law defines sin. You wouldn't know what sin was unless you had the law. God said, don't do this. And now we know, oh, okay, that's, that's bad. God says, do this. Oh, okay, that is required. So the law defines sin. And God told us through the definition and delineation of the law, if you sin, you will die. The wages of sin is death. So the law is good. It reflects God's character. Yet it gives power to sin. And sin is the sting of death. Death is the result of sin. All of that will be overcome and swallowed in victory if you know Jesus Christ. Verse 57, but thanks be to God. The greatest enemies on planet earth today are Satan, sin, death, But if you know Jesus Christ personally, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the God-man, that He came 2,000 years ago, lived a perfect life, gave Himself willingly to be a sacrifice by being crucified on the cross, if you believe that He absorbed the wrath of God the Father on the cross as your substitute, even though He didn't deserve it, if you believe that that He died and was buried and that He rose again on the third day declaring that He is Lord, and that He ascended back into heaven, that He is the only way to heaven, He's the only way you can be forgiven, it's His works that save you, not your own, and you believe that by faith, and you cry out to Jesus, save me from my sin, God will answer that prayer, He will save you, He will regenerate you, you will be born again, you'll be adopted into the family of God, you'll be transferred from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of His beloved Son, You will be a Christian, a child of God, secure forever, for all eternity. And then this promise will be yours. You will have victory forever over death. Amen. That's the gospel. That is the good news. That's the gospel of the kingdom. And it's only uh, an inheritance for you if you believe what I just said about Jesus Christ. So if you don't know Jesus Christ, you need to embrace Him. He's the only hope for humanity. Always has been. Always will be. So that is the remedy over death and sin. It's the rapture and salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. And then finally, after the rapture, the remedy, finally there's the reward. Christian, if you believe this, if you believe the truth of the resurrection, if that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the gospel, if the resurrection is your hope that someday you know this life is but a vapor, this life is temporary, what matters is eternity, ultimately with God and His people forever. If that's your worldview, that is your perspective, then that will be your incentive to live life 
faithfully persevering despite a fallen world, despite trials and hardships. You will continue to persevere. You won't be rattled. You won't be shaken. You will stand firm in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe the basic gospel and the resurrection of Christ and that you too will be raised again from uh, the dead someday, you won't have stability in your life. If you have wrong thinking and wrong doctrine, it will affect your stability in this life. That's what he says. He's talking about stability in this life. Perseverance. Moving on. Taking another step. Getting out of bed. Living one more week. How long can I survive? How long will this go on? Where does my strength come from? That's the theme of verse 58. And so here's what he says. Here's, there's a great reward for you, Christian. Even though this life is hard... It is wearisome. It is difficult. It is painful. It's not forever. It's only temporary. And in the meantime, you have great stability. You have a rock of foundation to stand upon. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now actually Paul is going to go full circle with verse 58, repeating what he said in verse 1 and verse 2 of this chapter, where he said, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preach to you, which also you received or believed, in which also you stand. You stand firm. The gospel of Christ is your foundation in life. Maybe people look at you and ask, Christian, how do you survive? This tragedy happened in your life, and this happened in your life, and this happened. How do you keep going on? How do you keep persevering, Christian? Because you stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why. If you believed it sincerely, which also you stand by, which also you are saved. That is, if you hold fast. And he repeats those words in 1 Corinthians 15.58. By the way, for ever since I've been a Christian going on 30 years, the verse that I've signed at the end of my name more than any other. It's always been 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Because I remember the first time I read it. I go, this is awesome. This is the reason for living life. This is the incentive for all things. This is the answer right here. Therefore, my beloved brethren, fellow Christians, be steadfast, which means be resolute, stand firm, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always. If you're a Christian, you should always be abounding in the work of the Lord. What, what is your ministry? What is Another way of saying, what is your ministry? It's, what is the work of the Lord that you're doing always and forevermore? Because it says always, abounding. Are you abounding in the work of the Lord, Christian? Are you always seeing how you can serve the Lord? Are you always pursuing or involved in a ministry of Jesus Christ in His local church, among God's people, in obedience to Him? What is your work of the Lord that you're abounding in? Because you have stability in your life, because you're rooted in the gospel, because you really know Jesus Christ. What is your abounding work of the Lord that you continue to pursue day after day after day after day after day. Do you have a work of the Lord that you're abounding in? He uses another synonym of phrase, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Work. He says, what is the work of the Lord that you're doing? Work is where we, it's ergo, uh, where we get ergonomics from. That's the Greek word here. It just means work. Work in the Lord. Ministry is work. Being a Christian is work. It's hard work. He even uses a more descriptive phrase at the end of the verse when he says, kapos, your toil. Not only is it work, it is toilsome. Being a Christian is hard. It ain't easy. We don't go around and, come to Jesus and your life will be a piece of cake. That's a lie. Come to Jesus and your, your life might get more difficult. It's hard. That's the word. Kapos, copious, literally. That's where we get the word. So what is your work in the Lord? That means... It, giving energy, giving energy and service to Jesus Christ. What are you doing, Christian? Do you have a work of the Lord? Are you toiling for Jesus or are you in cruise control? No, I'm just coasting for Jesus. I'm floating for Jesus. I'm parachuting for Jesus. Or are you working for the Lord, toiling for Jesus? Well, if you are a Christian, 
If that's how you live your life and think about how you should live your Christian life, if you just keep persevering and you every once in a while say, what is it all for? Is it all a waste of time? Does it, does it even matter? Can I really change the world that's fallen apart? No, God is watching. It's not vain. The word for vain means empty. It's not empty. The Lord is your master. He's the only one that you are called to please. His opinion is the only one really ultimately that matters. And no matter what you do. And we just look forward to him saying someday, well done. Well done, faithful servant. Because he's the only one that we serve. And that's why Paul said it's not in vain. And not only is it not in vain because he's already said, or he's going to say further in Corinthians, uh, chapter 2 Corinthians, but he also said in 1 Corinthians that when you die as a Christian, you're going to go to the judgment seat of Christ and there's going to be an award ceremony and we are going to be awarded by Jesus Christ for the service that we do in this life that pleases him. That's the reward. It's not in vain. We are investing in eternity. Jesus said that. Our rewards are in heaven. Those are real rewards. And we'll receive those rewards from Jesus someday. So I encourage you, fellow brother, fellow sister in Christ, if you know Jesus Christ, keep persevering. Keep persevering. Keep toiling. Keep working. Jesus is watching. He is pleased. It helps the growth of His body. He will bless you. And in the end, there is a reward that you will be blessed by. If you're a Christian and you're not involved, and you're not working, you're not toiling, hopefully this verse is a good reminder to help you think about, okay, how can I get involved? How can I get uh, put my hand to the plow and start serving Jesus, whatever it is? Talk to Him. Pray to Him. He'll give you the wisdom, and He'll help you find a way that you can serve Him faithfully, and then you, too, will be doing work that is not in vain. With that, let's go to prayer before we go into communion. Okay, Father, we thank You for our time together. We thank You for these great reminders uh, from your word, from the Apostle Paul, this amazing chapter about uh, the reality of bodily resurrection. Thank you for the gospel, that salvation comes only through Jesus Christ. He's the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrificial death, your amazing resurrection, supernatural ascension on high, and that you reign as king even now calling sinners to yourself and taking care of your children. And I thank you, God, for every person here today that has been saved, has been rescued by you, adopted into your family. Help us to be faithful, to keep pressing on and persevering, to be working and toiling for you. And maybe those who are believers but aren't working or don't have a ministry or aren't investing their time in the right way, God, help them. Give them the wisdom to see how they can do that, be faithful to you. And also, Lord, if there are people who don't know you, they're not Christians, they don't have this hope. They don't have this inheritance. We entrust them and their soul to you that you would rescue them, you would save them. And we just pray it all for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.